Uh, have y'all heard of the organization PETA? It's the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. They're like, they're like all about like, like not eating meat and like, not just like, you know, they're not just like, don't like, don't like beat your dog or anything. Like what they'll do is there'll be somebody walking down the street in a fur coat and they'll, they'll have like red paint and throw red paint on the complete stranger who's wearing the fur coat so that it looks like they're wearing a blood-stained animal carcass to protest the fact that an animal died for that coat. I mean, they, they're pretty radical. Um, they'll do some things. I, I, there's a picture of them here. Uh, some of them have before, they'll, they'll put themselves in cages. Uh, this was actually a protest in Hong Kong. Um, you can see, I can't, you can't read the, the foreign language. It says animals suffer on fur farms. And so you can see them in their fur coats. And they'll do this to like protest animals being in the circus or protest animals in the zoo. And I was going to tell you this. I mean, it, this is just a fact. A zoo without animals is pretty terrible. Um, so, I mean, just you can write that down as a note because that's true. And so, but that's what they, they'll protest things like that. I mean, they are pretty radical about what they believe. And so if somebody told me, hey, what, what would you think of as a crazy protester? I would have picked PETA until I read this story about this group of people from Saskatchewan, Canada, which that might explain something. They're from Canada. No offense if you're from Canada, but you know, it's really just the top hat of America. There's nothing super special there. This group of people kind of lived in the neighborhood association, lived in the neighborhood, and, and as they would go back and forth down their streets, their, their streets had potholes in them, and they're falling apart, and they had, they had petitioned the local government, and they had written letters, and they had sent emails, and they'd made phone calls, and nothing was happening. And so they decided that they were going to protest, and they protested by making a calendar, like a 12-month calendar, and every month of the calendar was one of the neighbors standing naked in the roads that were potholes. And so this is a true story. Like, like there's a picture of it. If you're listening on the iPod, iTunes download, there's nobody actually really naked. But that was a calendar thing of, of this guy in his canoe out on the potholes. I don't know how that conversation went. Like when you're sitting around at the, at the homeowners association meeting and they're complaining, well, I called, yeah, and I sent an email. And somebody went, I've got an idea. What if we all got naked, took some pictures, and made a calendar? At that moment, I would have been like, I'll just slow down over the potholes. You know, I'll drive around them because the world does not need me in a canoe out on some potholes or anything like that. So, but I mean, that, to do something like that, to, to lock yourself in a cage, to pose naked with all your neighbors on a, uh, for a calendar to protest something, you've got to be pretty sold out to your cause, right? You've got to be pretty passionate about it. You've got to go, hey, this is important to me. I'll even go to some crazy lengths to accomplish this task that I'm passionate about. question I'd ask you tonight is what are you passionate about? You know, there's some people that are passionate about football or they're passionate about sports. You can go ahead and take it off of the naked guy. Nobody will hear anything I'm saying at that point. Some people are passionate about sports. You go to like a, an, an NFL football game or an NBA basketball game, something like that, you're going to pay a lot of money for a ticket. You're going to pay a lot of money for parking. You're going to pay a lot of money for popcorn and a drink. You're going to pay gas money to get there. You might have to pay for a hotel. And people are, will spend $1,000 possibly to go sit and watch their favorite team because they're a fan. And they're going to wear their jersey that they bought that was very expensive, a $70 jersey. And 
They're going to drive up in the car that has emblems of their favorite team on it. I mean, people are fa- they, they'll do some crazy things about the things they're passionate about. You see people like, like in December, you turn on the, the football game, and like in Green Bay or Buffalo, it'll be snowing, and there's going to be some fool out there with all of his buddies, shirt off, and they're like painted up like for their team because they're passionate. There's people that are like kind of top-notch, over-the-board, passionate about their team. Like, and I have, I have a friend that's, that's like this. He's got tattoos of all of his favorite teams. I mean, you're, you are you're all in at that point. There's no going back, right? I mean, you can wash off the body paint in December. Once you've got the tattoo, you're a lifer for that, that team. That's a passionate fan. Some of you are passionate about music. You, you'll save up money to go to a concert pay extra for like the chance of the meet and greet maybe. You, you'll pay some of you like to join a fan club and you paid like $40 to join the fan club and all you get is an, is an, uh, is an 8 by 10 glossy of somebody that an intern's fake signature the name on and mailed it to you and you're like, yeah. Do those type things. Some of you have done this. I, I've struggled with this. Like one of my favorite artists comes out and like I buy the album on iTunes. I download it. And then like a week later, I found out that they released the deluxe edition, right? That's got like five new songs on it that you can't buy individually. Then you have to go buy the album again. And I don't do that. But if you're a fan, you're going to go, yeah, because I want those five songs. Passionate. And then there's people that take it to the ne- another level. They're the people that like love their music artists so much, they name their children after them. There's somebody in this building right now that's done that. If you come here on a regular basis, I'll just tell you this. Shanna Downs loves Garth Brooks. And it is not a coincidence that her oldest daughter's name is Brooke Downs, named after Garth Brooks. That is a fa- So we went to the Garth Brooks concert in Dallas a, a few weeks ago. And like we're walking in and there's this lady and she's got like her Garth Brooks t-shirt from like 1993. She went to the concert because she's like the mega fan. I'm like, nope. Not unless you've named your kid after him. That honor goes to this lady right here because, I mean, she's passionate about him. When you get to be an adult, some of your parents are this way. They're passionate about their kids. If your parents, I don't know if you ever question if your parents love you or not, but if when you were an elementary schooler, if you played like elementary soccer and your parents went and watched you, they love you like nothing else. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure that hell will be an eternity of children's soccer is what that will be. And so if your parents went to watch you, they love, they're passionate about you. One day your parents are going to go to your graduation. You're going to graduate high school as you should, and they're going to go and they're going to get there early and they're going to sit in the hot sun and they're going to spend four hours for this. Brett Levi. That's it. The whole has five, six hours for that experience. Then they'd be like, whoo, blowing air horns because they love, they're passionate about you. I mean, some people tell you a story about passion and going, gone crazy. In Texas, before y'all were born, most of you, I was in high school, there was a lady named Wanda Holloway. Now, Wanda Holloway had a daughter named Shanna. Wanda Holloway, when her daughter was five years old, Wanda went out and bought her daughter her first cheerleader suit five-year-old cheerleader suit, because Wanda knew that her daughter, Shanna, was going to be a cheerleader one day. Right after that, she gets into like kind of like hardcore gymnastics as a, as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, to get ready for cheerleading. She goes to a Christian elementary school, and 
kindergarten through fifth grade. Her best friend is named Amber. She goes to school with her. But in sixth grade, right before sixth grade starts, Wanda pulls her daughter, Shanna, out of the Christian elementary school and enrolls her in the public junior high for one reason. In seventh grade, you can be a cheerleader, but you try out for it at the end of sixth grade. So she pulls her out of the Christian school, puts her in the public school for all of sixth grade so that, so that she can be a student when cheerleading tryouts come out. Well, lo and behold, tryouts start. There are two open spots for the seventh grade girls' spot, and there's two girls trying out, Shanna and some other girl. Then her best friend, she spent all of her life with, growing up with, best friend named Amber, who stayed at the Christian school for sixth grade. Her mom calls the principal and says, we're going to come in seventh grade. Could my daughter try out for the cheer team because she'll be here in seventh grade? And the school said, sure, yeah, you can do that. So now there's two positions and three people. Wanda Holloway, Shannon's mom, doesn't like this because now her daughter may not become a cheerleader. It's been not her daughter's, but Wanda's lifelong dream. So she starts gossiping about it. She starts uh, telling people that's not fair. She shouldn't be able to do that. And actually goes to the school and threatens to sue the school for allowing this mom to have her daughter try out. School says, hey, that's the kind of decision made. We're going to do that. They changed the rule for the next year. They said, hey, we think you're right. We've already said yes. So from now on, we won't allow that to happen, but we've already said yes. They try out. Shanna, Wanda's daughter, doesn't make the team. She's not one of the two. So next year rolls around. She goes through seventh grade, going to try out for the eighth grade cheerleading squad. And so mom, Wanda, is all about this. So she comes with an idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get, this is a lower socioeconomic school. We're going to get rulers and pencils that say, like, vote for Shanna, and we're going to pass them out because people need this in our school. And we're, so she starts going, she's passing all these things out. The cheerleading sponsor and the principal call her in, and they say, hey, listen, the, the rules for tryouts state that you can't give anything away. And so they confiscate the rulers and the pencils. They said, sorry, you know, you, you're not allowed to do that. It's not fair because some parents don't have money to spend to do things like that. So you can't influence the votes that way. Wanda says, okay. They confiscate her rulers and pencils. She goes and gets more and keeps passing them out anyway. And they come back and they go, hey, you broke the rules. Your daughter's been disqualified. So now she can't be a cheerleader her eighth grade year. End of her eighth grade year, tryouts for ninth grade come. Legal action didn't work. Pencils and rulers didn't work. So Wanda Holloway, this is a true story. This is down in Texas, down South Texas. Wanda Holloway calls her ex-husband's brother-in-law who had been notoriously into some crime, spent some time in prison, and she says, I need you to find me somebody that will kill Amber and her mother. The brother-in-law, ex-husband's brother-in-law, who's like a criminal, like, he's, like, done all kinds of, like, bad things. He's like, uh-uh, that's crazy. I ain't killing, like, a, you know, a ninth grader. He goes to the police. The police don't even believe him at first, but they say, when he finally convinces them, they say, okay, and they wiretap him, stuff like that. They go, you know, fake. And so he goes back, and he says, hey, I found somebody. This is true. And he says, it's going to be $5,000 to kill the, the daughter and the mom. And Wanda Holloway says this. They had it all on tape. She said, I don't have $5,000, so for $2,500, just kill the mom, and maybe that'll make the daughter so distraught that she won't try out for the team. And she gets arrested. She goes to prison. That's the cover of the People magazine, the Texas cheerleader plot that says, I want her gone. And it was all, there's been like two TV movies made out of it, books written about it. Crazy, crazy. So far, but, but you know what, what it is? It's passion. Now, passion gone way too far, passion gone way out of bounds, but here's a mom who says, I will do anything for my daughter. I'm so passionate about her that I would murder two people. Again, passion out of bounds, not good, but some people go to extremes for the things that they love and they care about. 
So you've been thinking about what you're passionate about, but I want to now shift to answer this question. What is God passionate about? What does God care about? What is the top-notch thing out there that God says, hey, I want? And I want us to look at this passage of Scripture. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 22. Um, if you don't know where Matthew is, if your Bible has red letters in it, some do. Uh, if you get to some, you're flipping through and you see some red letters, you're going to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And Matthew's going to be the first book. It's going to be about two-thirds of the way through. Can't find it that way. Go to your table of contents. Find Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to read a passage of Scripture. I'm going to stop along the way, kind of give you some comments on it. And then we're going to look at one verse that teaches us tonight's truth. So here's what happens in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 and 35. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he, that's Jesus, that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So we've got these two people, two groups of people. We've got the Pharisees, and we've got the Sadducees. These two groups of people were both religious leaders. They just they were both Jewish religious leaders. They just had some theological differences. They had some differences about how, what they believed about interpreting the law, the Old Testament law. They had some differences of agreement about what happens in the afterlife, but they're both Jews. Uh, they're just kind of two different camps. But they're also the two groups of people that rule what's called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of people that were basically the religious court system. So their job was to understand the law, the Old Testament, all, the, all what God had given Moses, and then they, were, they, were, they would interpret it and they would make legal decisions. Now, there's tension between these two groups. When Jesus comes on the scene, these two groups that have tension, they kind of unite around a common enemy, which is Jesus, because Jesus is teaching some things that's kind of wrecking shop spiritually. And so these guys that were opposed to each other have now kind of banded together. The Sadducees, and you can read it in the verses previous, they go up and ask Jesus this question about the resurrection. And they're doing it to try to kind of stump Jesus. And Jesus gives them an answer. And he gives them an answer so good in verse 33, right before that. It says, when the crowd heard it, what Jesus said, they were astonished at his teaching. The Sadducees asked a question. Jesus answered. Everybody's like, whoa, that was deep. And the Sadducees hang their head. They've been defeated. And the Pharisees see it. So the Pharisees huddle up. And they're like, the Sadducees couldn't stump him. And so they get together. They've got a guy who's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. He's a guy that understands law, and so they come up with this question, and he goes and approaches Jesus, and he asks him this in verse 36. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, the Pharisees had taken the Old Testament law, and they had kind of whittled it down. Not really whittled it down. It's a lot. But they had 613 different laws. And that was, you followed all of those laws to be a good Jew. They have 613. And so this guy is asking Jesus this question, and the scripture tells us he's asking to test him. He doesn't really care what Jesus says. He wants to debate. He wants to trap. And it's going to look something like this. And I'll give you an example. Let's just say they, not the 613, maybe they just start with the Ten Commandments. They're hoping for something to go like this. Jesus, what's the greatest of the Ten Commandments? And they're hoping Jesus will say something like, who knows, hey, uh, the commandment says, have no other gods before me. Don't have any idols. They're then going to respond with something like this. So, Jesus, with all these people watching, so you're saying that that's more important than the law that says do not murder. So what you're saying, Jesus, is that as long as someone doesn't worship idols, they could go and murder somebody, right? Is that what you're saying? It's okay, because that's the most important one, not have idols. So I don't have idols, but I'm murdered. So that's real. they're going to try to trap him. And Jesus gives this response in verse 37. And he said to him, here's the answer to the question, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus said is this. He said, let's just whittle it down. You want to know what the most important thing is? You've asked for one, but I'm going to give you one A and one B. They go together. The most important thing you can do is to love God and to love people. That's, I mean, that's, you hear us talk about that a lot. That's the vision of our church that we've been talking about in our youth ministry for years. We want to be a church. We want to be a youth ministry that when you go to school, if somebody says to you, hey, where do you go to church? And you go, I go to Clyde or I go to First Baptist. or, or our, our, our prayer, what we're aiming towards is to be the type of people that your friends, the, the neighbors, the community goes, man, that's like the most ch- loving church I've ever, I've, I've ever seen. Whether they go here or not, that's what we, we want to love God and love people in such a way that the community goes, man, that, those people are different. I had a need and they met my need. They've always been kind to me. We don't always agree. We disagree about things, but they've always been loving in the way we do it. Because Jesus says the most important thing you do is love God and love people. But I want you to see this next verse because this is the one we're just kind of like ending on. It's verse 40. He concludes this. On these two commandments, love God and love people, depend all the law and prophets. Now remember, he's talking to an expert in the law. He's talking to a guy who's probably memorized all 613 laws. He knows how to apply them to different situations. If this happens, then we do that. If this happens, do this. And Jesus says, hey, everything you've studied, everything you've memorized, all hangs on two things, love God and love people. If you'll do those two things, you've got it covered. What he's saying is this. When you read through the Old Testament, every conversation that God had with Abraham Every conversation God had with Moses, everything that God did in the life of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, what God did with Ruth, what God did with Joseph, what God did with Jacob, what God did with David and Isaac and all of these people throughout all the Old Testament and then all the prophets that God spoke to and said, go tell the people this, all of that was given to us to teach two things, love God and love people. God went to those great extents Because God is passionate about you loving the people that are around you. So we put nine desks in the center. I think Zach told you already, we're doing this as a church-wide series. On Sunday mornings, our our, our parents and our adults or stuff, they're talking about loving your neighbors, and they're talking about the literal neighbors, the people that live in the eight houses around you. Now, we talked about this, and and I I thought this would be kind of odd. I thought it'd be kind of weird to talk about loving your neighbor and then me to encourage you guys, you know, you're like 15, to go next door and ring your neighbor's doorbell and go, hey, you want to hang out? You know, that would be odd because your neighbor's like 60, you know? And you're like, yeah, come in. We're watching the Golden Girls, you know, or something like that. You know, and you're like, oh, no, I won't. Yeah, so, so we kind of talk about, what about where you live? You spend a majority of your day sitting in a desk at school. And I understand that's not where you live, and your parents are going to look at this from neighbors, but we're asking you guys for the next three weeks to be intentional about eight people sitting around you. To love your neighbor. To love God, to love people, and to do it intentionally. Now, loving people on your football team is easy because you kind of all play football together. Loving your friends can be easy. But you're going to have a classroom. You may be sitting by some friends, but there's probably some people you're sitting by that you don't really know, and that gets a little bit harder to practice love. Now, here's my story. I'm going to to speed this up. When I was in eighth grade, 
I took algebra. Seventh grade, we did pre-algebra. Y'all like take like pre-algebra now like in fourth grade. Back in the old day, you didn't get to do things like that. We had algebra in, in, uh, in eighth grade. And if you passed algebra in eighth grade, you could go on and take the next math in ninth grade. I think that still happens now. But I take algebra in eighth grade and I pass. But I have a teacher named Mrs. Brown who I'm pretty sure didn't know anything about algebra. I don't even know how I passed. I mean, the lady was not real bright. Um, and so I took algebra, and I got to pass, and they said, hey, you can go to geometry. But I talked to my parents, and I think this was a moment of wisdom for me. I said, I know I can go to geometry, but after geometry, I'm going to go to algebra too. And, and I, don't, I don't know algebra. I mean, I passed it, but I don't know it. And I told my parents, I said, I'm going to take algebra again in ninth grade. So I take algebra in ninth grade. I've already had a year of it, and I passed it. So I do know it pretty well, just not great. And I go and sit in algebra class. I'm in ninth grade. And I sit next to this guy. I kid you not, he had to be like 23 years old. I mean, and this was back in the day of heavy metal music. Um, that's why I couldn't name my kids after the musicians I liked, because my kids would have been named like Poison Levi or Rat Levi or Motley Crue Levi, and that's just weird. Sitting next to this guy, he's got a jean jacket, got not just band patches over it. That was a cool thing. Like his band patches like had pentagrams and like goat heads and devil stuff all over it. The guy's hair, like long, halfway down to his butt. I mean, like, and, and again, like I'm thinking his kids are in class with us, you know. I mean, like he's this old. He's like flunked algebra seven times. And I end up sitting next to him. And I'm serious. I'm thinking the only word problem this guy's going to be able to do is like if Tom had three kilos of cocaine <laughs> and he gave two to Bob and Bob stabbed seven people, were there more people dead or more kilos of cocaine? He'd have been like, oh, yeah, more people dead. I got that one. I mean... This guy was like, and I remember like, I was sitting next to him. Now, I'm younger than everybody else. So when I graduated high school, I graduated when I was 16. I was real young. So when I'm a freshman, I'm 13 years old. This guy's like 23, you know. Like, he's killed more people than birthdays I've had. <laughs> this guy can't do math. And I'm like kind of scared of him, you know, because I'm like, I, he might like sacrifice me. He's got pentagrams on it, you know. no. But over the course of that year, he sat in a desk right next to me. Because he didn't know how to do algebra, and guys, I wish I, I wish I did this for Jesus. I wish I leaned into his life to love him and help him learn algebra because I loved him. I did it because I didn't want him to stab me. Um, that, that was my, but had I just leaned in and loved him because God called me to love my neighbor because he was, God had positioned him in a desk next to me, I might have loved him even better. So that's what we're going to ask you to do. So I'm going to ask you to do three things tonight. I'm going to ask you to pick a class that you have. And we've put these things, let me borrow yours for a second. We put these things on your chair. And you're in the middle. These are the things your parents are going to have in its houses. What I'm going to ask you to do, I don't want you to do it now. Don't write anybody's name yet. Don't write down anybody's name yet. Because I want you to do this with some prayer. And we're going to do this at the end if we don't run out of time some. I don't want you to just pick a class, any class. I want you to spend a few minutes and ask God, God, what class would you want me to strategically position myself in for the next three weeks? Here's what that means. If you're in study hall with six of your best friends, God may pick that one, but probably, he's probably not. He might. If he does, then pick it. But as you pray about it, God might go, you know what? It's this class. And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to, to tonight put your name in the middle 
and put those people's names in those desks around. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of this in three stages of how do I love people. First thing I'd want you to do is this. Over the next three weeks, if you don't know everybody's name that's sitting around you in those desks, those eight desks, start there. That's level one. If you don't know someone's name, you're not going to love them well. Know their name. Here's the second thing. Be able to, to write down. Maybe you'll do this in your small groups. Be able to say something about them. Here's something I know about this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. I know them well enough that I can identify something about them. And then the third thing is this. Here's where it gets more difficult. Here's how you know if you've moved into really loving somebody. If you know something about them that very few people do. Something that, that's a little bit more intimate knowledge. Put your hand down. Because if you know somebody well, and, and you love somebody well, they're going to open up to you. They're going to want to hear your thoughts. They're going to trust you because they know you. I'll give you an example of how this works. I've probably told this story before. I remember at camp several years ago, we had three or four girls. They came walking up. I'm heading somewhere, and they're like mad. I can see like the scowl on their face. They're like angry, and they're like muttering on their teeth. And they come up to me. They find me, and they're like, this lady from such and such church, some other church, she's like so rude. And I'm like, what happened? And they go, they go, well, she, she told us that we need to go change our clothes because like, our, we're dressed inappropriately. And they're like, she's just like rude. And I looked at them and went, yeah, she's right. Y'all look kind of skanky, you know? And they go, oh, okay. And they head off and they go change clothes. Now, here's the difference. The lady probably wasn't even rude. They just didn't know her. But when somebody that they knew who loved them and has loved them well, who's told them truth, who's been there for them, that's encouraged. When, then, when I was able to speak, I was able to say some hard things to them because they trusted me because we had this level three of relationship. I knew their names. I knew something about them, but I knew them deeply. And when you know someone deeply, they trust and you are able to love them better. So in a moment, we're going to pray. You're going to write your name down. You're going to start filling in these names. And over the course of the next weeks, we want you to know something about them. Now, here's the second thing I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to commit to pray. I'm going to ask you to commit to pray for these eight people by name. Several times. Pray for them before you go to bed. Pray for them when you're headed to class. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you this, and this, isn't, this is not guilt trip at all. I'm, I'm telling you this because it's, it's, it's easy to say pray, but every Wednesday night, I invite anybody that wants you to stay and gather right around here and pray for our friends. We, we stay for 15 minutes after Clyde and pray. And we usually have about eight out of 200 people. And I'll say that to guilt trip you or anything like that. I say that to tell you this. We're already here. Your friends are here. And you have the reminder. It usually goes like this. Hey, we're done. If you want to pray, come over. I mean, you have it like right in front of you. So what I'm saying is when we're committing to pray, I'm asking you now not to do I'm asking you to remember. I'm asking you to write it down. Not have somebody invite you right now. But to say, you know what? I am for the next three weeks. I'd love for you to do it longer than that, but for the next three weeks, I'm just going to have a conversation. I'm going to pray for these people. As I get to know them, I'm going to pray for their needs. I'm going to love them well by praying. Now, here's the third thing. Commit to know them. Talked about that just saying kind of that third level. Commit to know them, know them better than you know them today. A couple years ago, Georgetown High School uh, made it to the state championship game. Pretty cool experience. So I'm at the Dallas Cowboys Stadium, and uh, I'm walking, and I'm trying to find like a, 
a spot to like go and sit. And it is jam-packed. And as I'm walking, one of our dads uh, is standing there, and he's like, he waves, and he's like, hey, I got two spots for you. My brother's with me. So we go down and sit. Some of you all know Caroline and Corby. It's their dad who I'm sitting with. Now, their dad played football in the NFL. He was like, a, he's a very talented athlete, which is why, like, their whole family is good at sports. It's genetic, in case you were wondering. Um, so Will's sitting there, and I'm sitting there next to him. So I'm sitting next to this guy who's played NFL football, and we're watching the football game, and he says this to me. He names one of the defensive ends for Georgetown. And he goes, now watch this guy. And he says, when this guy lines up correctly, when he put, and I don't even know because I'm not that much full, he's, when he puts his feet here and his shoulders here, he is unstoppable. But he never lines up, he'll line up wrong and he gets blown off the ball. And so we did this, I'm not kidding, and I'm not exaggerating, about 20 plays in a row. Before they would snap the ball, he would look at the, he would look at the guy and he'd go, he's going to get into the backfield, or he'd go, nope, not going to happen. And I'm not kidding when I tell you he was right 20 out of 20 times. And I was like, this is crazy. I mean, that he has that kind of attention to the detail. It's because he spent years playing football and watching tape and learning that kind of stuff. Now, you've experienced that. You've had a friend, a close friend that you've spent time with, and they've walked in the room, and you just looked at him, and you went, what's wrong? And they went, nothing. And you went, no, seriously, what's wrong? Because you know. You identified it. You could see it. You're not going to have that type of relationship with the eight people around you at the end of three weeks but you've got to start moving that way, being intentional, spending some time praying deeply for them so that you can know them and know them well. So here's what we're going to do. Colin's going to come up. I'm going to ask you to do this. I don't want you to write. I'm not, and we're going to take a long time. If you're a guest here, this might feel a little uncomfortable to you. understand that. I, just go with us. I'm going to ask you to pray for a few minutes, just quietly, just you. Colin's going to play for a second. And I want you to pray and ask this, God, what class do you want me to target? I would love for you to target all your classes. I'd love for you to, to love all the people in your class. I'd love you to take eight of these and go, I'm going to do this for everybody. But for, but for, for three weeks, one class that you're going to think about loving intentionally. So take a few minutes. We'll do some strumming. We're not going to sing our last song yet. I just want you to pray while they lay down some music ahead of you. take long, just a second. Just think through your classes. You may not know at the end of tonight. Maybe you need to go home. And listen to the Holy Spirit tonight as you lay in your bed and ask God again, God, which class? For three weeks, we're going to do this experiment. What would it look like if we love eight people around us, praying for them, knowing their name, getting to know them deeply, when we discover they have a need, meeting their need, because God called us to love people. What God is passionate about is you loving the people He's placed around you. All of the law, all of the prophets, and now all of the New Testament, the entire Bible, reveals that to us, that God's passionate about you loving your neighbor.
you can write whenever you want. I'm going to close and tell you this story, kind of what's happening for me. Then I'm going to pray for us and do some announcements and we're going to play boxes and boxes kind of goes in this. But as an adult, I'm not in school. If you're done praying, you can look up if you want. Not in school. I don't have a classroom to go to. So a man and I have started in our neighborhood. I'm going to be honest. I've lived in my neighborhood for five years now. And I'm one of those people, like, I wave to my neighbors and stuff. But I'm to, that, I'm to that point, like, I've met them before. And so now it's awkward, like, hey, I met you one time. And I've waved to you for the last three years, and I don't know your name. And I don't want to go up and be like, hey, my name's Brett. And they go, oh, yeah, I know. And I'm like, oh, dang it. Because I don't know yours. So we're having a block party. November 6th, next Tuesday, it's National Night Out. So next Wednesday, I can probably tell you something about it. I might have some stories. We just said, hey, you know what? We're going to throw a block party in our neighborhood, and we're going to invite all of our neighbors. And I realized this, none of our neighbors know each other. Nobody, they don't know my name. I, they, none of them know each other. So we're going to grill hamburgers, hot dogs, bring out some music, hopefully get inflatable, something like that. Well, in that process, I was like, I, I mean, I've got one grill, and I, there's 50 houses in my, in my, my little association. So I went across the street to Tom's house. Tom's one of our Georgetown police officers. And he was outside. I said, hey, Tom. And I said, hey, would you, what would you think if we did this? And he goes, man, I'm all in. Let's do it. I said, cool. So he and Olivia, I saw Frankie, who I do know his name, who lives next door to Tom, out. So I went over to Frankie and said, hey, Frankie, this was a couple days later. Thinking about doing this, would you be willing? He's like, yeah, we're all in. I've had more intentional conversations because I'm planning a block party with those two guys than I had in the five years since I moved in. Now, here's the cool thing. Sitting in my car the other day, man and I are about to go on a date. Tom's coming in from the late shift with, with the police department. And he comes over to my car. We, I mean, we don't talk that much. And he comes over real time and he goes, hey, how's, what's the block party? And there's long story trying to work on the homeowners association. So we had some, some hangouts. We're getting there. And so we start talking. And I said, yeah, man, are you just coming in now? And he's like, yeah, I had a long night and we're doing this. And I told him, I said, hey, could like I do a ride along sometime? I would love to be a pretend police officer for a night. Right? Wouldn't that be awesome? I don't even know if you're allowed out of the car, but, you know, I'm going to walk out with a flashlight. Like, I see your license and ID, please. you know. He's, yeah, we can do that. And he said, in fact, because he lives, he lives, I'll just pick you up. We'll drive over to the station. We can fill out the paperwork. When you're done, you don't have to stay out all night. I can just drive you back by your house and drop you off. I'm like, sweet. It'd be awesome. Had a 30-minute conversation with a lady on the phone today about the Homeowners Association and this block party talking to her about opening up our home to have their homeowner association meeting in our living room so that we can love our neighbors well. Because here's what happens. We had a homeowner association meeting. We all live on one street, basically. Everybody that went to the meeting got in their cars and they drove over to the community center in the Georgetown Park, halfway across town, had a meeting about our neighborhood, and they all got in their cars and they drove back to our neighborhood. And I was like, that's kind of dumb. Why don't you just stay in there? You can use our house. Come over. And, you... and she was like, oh, that'd be a great idea. Because I've been intentional, that's the whole point. Because I've been intentional and said, I'm going to love my neighbors well, all these relationships are starting to begin to develop. It's going to be a cool thing. To be determined. At some point, I have to start being serious about loving God and loving people. And that's what we're going to ask you guys to do. We're going to talk about it the next two weeks. We're going to talk about it on Sunday morning, our small groups. We're going to talk about it in the sermon. If you come to 11 o'clock service, love for you to be there. I'm going to pray for us. And then Stipik's going to give you some announcements. We'll play boxes and we'll get out of here. God. God, I pray for the students who don't know what class they're to be picking. I pray that you would speak to them. They'd hear you clearly. God, for some of them, maybe the very first time they hear your voice, they sense you leading them in a direction. And God, I pray that they would step out in that for the next three weeks, 
we'd be intentional about being the people who love our city, who love our neighborhoods, who love our school and love our classrooms. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.